Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the JMRK podcast. Today we have a very special guest all the way from Philadelphia. Would you like to introduce yourself? Um, hi, I'm Joe. Like, or I guess what the people know me best as. Um, I've been booking shows in Philadelphia for 22 years this year, and I am best known for being the guy behind This Is Hardcore Fest. Wow. I, I'm just so excited that you're here. I, I just can't get over the fact that we're actually doing this. Um, this is hardcore. Super legendary. I feel like it's um, like the biggest um, hardcore festival in the United States, maybe in the entire world. Um, what drove you to actually start booking the festival? Because I know it started back in 2006. Six, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, it goes without saying that a lot of people who book shows, they always want to, you know, there isn't a young kid out there that I don't, that I don't talk to these days who legitimately will be like, Hey, I'm thinking about doing my own fest. And I think because of us and Santa Fury and United blood, it's become something less of a, uh, Oh my God, I could never do that to young kids almost being like the cool thing I hear is I want to do what you guys do for our scene, which is really cool. So, um, a quick rundown. Um, I, I started booking shows when I was 16 years old because there were shows that I was going to where people weren't going, but I knew my younger friends would go and I knew that my friends would like some of these bands. So we kind of made an effort to get shows happening in our own area. And I didn't always do the best shows. I didn't always do the coolest shows, but I had a kind of cool thing where like I, I booked a bunch of bands that are now very cool at a, like a perfect time when they weren't super popular, you know, like I think at the time in, in November of 97, I had already done like four shows, but the biggest show I did at that time was 25 to life. And, um, the following year I was doing like E-Town concrete and stuff, but like they weren't at the, they weren't at the stage they're at now. They weren't at the, uh, Oh my God, this is the coolest band ever thing. So like, you know, I had grown up, going to hardcore shows, you know, and I say grown up because like I was going to metal shows. I found hardcore. I was 15 years old, moshing in the pit, buying every demo I can. So by the time I was 17, I knew a bunch of people from hardcore. So it was really easy to just get bands because there wasn't a lot of people trying to book you down concrete in Philadelphia. I mean, two, three years later. Yeah. They, they definitely blew up. But I got kind of lucky. And, um, it kind of became that thing. Like I did all war death threat. I actually did one of death threats first, not Connecticut shows ever in Philadelphia. And, um, it kind of all just kind of came to be people that I met while my own band was on tour and bands that I liked that I didn't think people wanted to see. And it was kind of cool because Philly had a lot of other good promoters already doing shows. So I didn't have to be the guy I kind of am now because there was enough people who were older and doing it that kind of did their shows. So I kind of got to just do what I wanted to do, which was way cool. I mean, in my head, which was way cooler to kind of not have to do like every single band that comes through. I mean, we're very blessed in Philadelphia now that we get to do so many shows, but then I got to kind of focus on the stuff that I wanted to see, you know? And I explain all this to you because at a certain point, I had the opportunity 
in 2000 and the end of 2003 to start booking at the first Unitarian Church in Philadelphia, which is like Mecca. It's legendary. And I, that's kind of when I kind of got re I like, it's easy to book shows, but then when you learn the art of booking shows and the business end of things and how to make sure the bands are getting paid fairly and everything's on, you know, in front of you, I would say that was like the beginning of me really learning. And I learned from Sean Agnew of R5 Productions. A year and a half later, Hellfest in New Jersey fell apart. And the key thing is when Hellfest fell apart, it was the guys in the Philly area who kind of like were my mentors that single-handedly saved the fest. You know, like the Friday night in Philly was at the church, uh, all out trail, um, with Coalesce's reunion and all, and, um, that same night, Lifetime and Bounce of Souls played the trot. The next day, Robbie Redsheets, who was a big influence on my show booking, he was an old school guy who was doing shows before I was in Philly. Um, he put on Champion 108 at the church, which was a matinee show with Comeback Kid, which then followed with a nighttime show with Lifetime and 108 at the venue called Starlight Ballroom. All in all, there ended up being like five or six shows just in the Philly area that, that weekend on, on top of each other. And the kind of consensus was, man, you know, like at the time there was no gentrification. People weren't dying to live in Philadelphia. Like it wasn't a cool spot. It wasn't safe. And I said to Sean, like, hey, man, I really think I could do a fest next year. There's so many people want to be here. And he's like, yeah, I mean, this venue we did for you know, Lifetime 108 was cool. So I had that in my mind, and uh, I didn't realize that Posse Numbers, which was a Wilkes Bar festival, decided to wrap it up that year. So the kind of juxtaposition of no more Hellfest, no more Posse Numbers, left a void. And I felt egotistically, obviously, like, well, I'm the guy that can, you know, make this happen. I can make a fest that everyone's going to see. And that's kind of how it rolled. And I got lucky that Sean Agnew, who's still one of the best promoters in the entire fucking world, was really a mentor and able to show me, like, okay, this is how you want to do a fest. This is how I would do it. You know? And I was lucky that we came across, we got lucky that the Starlight Ballroom started letting Sean do shows there, which then gave us access to it. And, you know, the first... The first three years, I had Sean really hold my hand and show me all the back math, how to do an Excel sheet right so you don't end up like this, and was really there to kind of walk me through. And then the last two or three kind of had started having the footing of it, but I really got to put Sean Agnew and R5 Productions out there. You know, um, I mean, Sean's booked every cool band you'll ever know in your entire life. I mean, the guy's so wild that, like, he had Diplo playing in his apartment because that was his friend before Diplo blew up. Like, Sean's just the coolest dude and he really showed me all the tricks of being a very professionally minded, not in the I need to make the most money, but like if you're going to be a DIY promoter, you can do things professionally and still punk and that was the biggest thing I learned from him. And the first six, this is hardcore, were at Starlight Ballroom and because of the R5 Productions guys, it was possible. So, I mean, I take I take credit where it can come. Like, oh, well, Joe put these bands. But honestly, the background and the format and the 
flow of how things went were by and large in part because I was working with R5 Productions. And then when we made the move to the Electro Factory, we just kind of took everything that we learned and we had to make it even crazier because it was bigger and whatever. But the fest has never changed. It's still a hall show. We rent the venue, we book the bands, we're in charge of almost everything, and it works. I hope that explains the question you asked. No, definitely. You went really into detail, and I appreciate that. Um, but I, I kind of want to jump back after the... Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. After um, the first This Is Hardcore, um, how were you feeling? Did, did you um, actually like foresee this thing being long-term, or were you, were you just kind of going with it like year by year? Number one, I named the best This Is Hardcore. And the first jokes that were coming out about it being a pulp record were like, oh, yeah, Joe, I didn't know you were a big pulp fan. And, like, at the time, we would go to 80s nights, and everyone was in the new wave and, like, English pop and all that. I was still pretty oblivious that there was a band called Pulp with a record called This Is Hardcore. So one would say that I was completely not thinking, oh, yeah, in 2019, we'll still be doing this. Maybe I would have thought a little differently about how to name the vest in the first place. But um, sometimes you just got to wing it, man. And, like, at that time in my life, a lot of bad things were going on, and I've always said that This Is Hardcore came into my life at the exact moment where I needed to focus on something that wasn't me and wasn't something that, like, had really anything to do with me. It was like, for a lot of other people. And I got lucky that this project came into my hands, and I, honestly, that was a driving force to keep it going. I mean, 2006 was dope. There was a ton of cool shit that could have been even cooler. I mean... Gorilla Biscuits really played the venue with Murphy's Law and Comeback Kid the week before the fest. Like we couldn't get it scheduled so they could be part of the fest because of the way the tour was routed. Um, <laughs> the same year, Have Heart basically was like, oh, yeah, it's cool, you're doing a fest? Now nah, we're not going to play it. And then he had playing like the Monday after <laughs> at the church, and there was like 100 people, and I'm like, man, you guys should have really played the fest. It'd been cool, and they're like, oh, we got to do it next year. So, like, I don't think people took me seriously enough to be able to book a festival. So I don't think that we had the credentials that we do now. So it almost was like a proving ground to be like, oh, well, like I, I, I want to book a Gorilla Biscuits. I want to do Have Heart. Like, I want to do these bands. And mind you, Have Heart wasn't really a thing in 2006, but I just wanted to like book cool hardcore bands. The festival, in my opinion, and I, you know, you got to remember, you know, in the mid nineties, the Super Bowl hardcore was the shit. Um, it wasn't until later 1990s with like Crazy Fest in Louisville and Hellfest and more the music festival and the smaller festivals that were regional that there were even hardcore fests. So like by the time Hellfest became this giant out of control monster stupid thing that people started getting kind of like, eh, you know, maybe this stress thing is getting out of control. So I wanted to kind of bring it back down to some reality. And I was driven by that for the first couple of years. So long and short, the basis of how the first year went really drove me to continue it. But I did not plan for some world takeover because obviously I, if I did, I wouldn't name it this hard it's crazy like how like big it's grown and for a fest to continue as long as this, this is hardcore has been going on, I, I think is really awesome. 
Um, I'm actually, I've never been, but uh, I'm actually going to go this year, which is crazy because um, things always happen, like work gets in the way. But um, I requested my vacation time back in December and I specifically told myself, I was like, I have to go this year because if I don't, like I'm just going to keep putting it off. I'm never going to go. So I'm actually really excited to go for the first time this year. And when, when people like yourself say that to me, I almost get like, I'm, I'm a pretty good talker, Okay. but I get a little nervous because it's overwhelming in a positive way that people are psyched on what we do. And it blows me away that that's our impact. You know, like you gotta remember is like, I did this because I wanted to see some cool bands I think we had a funny gimmick that I could probably pull up that was like, you know, no big reunions, just real working hardcore bands. Because at the time, there was a big bunch of bands that would be on booking agents and they would get cool shows. And a lot of these upcoming bands that we actually featured on the first and second best didn't have the real representation, which is ironic because now, nowadays, the smallest bands have booking agents and managers. And you're like, maybe we should go back. So when I hear someone say like, I love the fest and I wish I could go and I'm doing everything I can. That's motivation for me to push forward and not be like, what's the point of even doing it? It's like, Oh yeah, because even though people don't come every year or some, all my friends who went the first six don't come or whatever, there's still people like yourself out there who are like, I want to go one day and fuck man, I'm a guy who puts concrete on the ground and makes it flat for a living. And I'm very blessed that people enjoy the work that we put together and that's why I still do it. So it's definitely a uh, synergistic thing where as long as there's people like you and, and people out there who say those things, like I really want to go one year. What's dope is you're not be like only if they get this band, you're like, I just got to be there. I got to see this whole thing. That makes it easier for me to go. Okay. My efforts aren't in vain, you know? So I appreciate it. Yeah. And I just thank you for everything that you do throughout the year leading up to the fest. So I'm really excited for that. But one thing I was curious about um, through the years of um, booking the festival, do you guys um, like, like keep track of attendance and um, see if uh, the attendance per year, like, you know, rises or drops? Oh, it's a, it's a wave, man. Like, you know, like at our biggest, at the small venue, because of the way the ticketing was, we weren't playing. We, I mean, the venue only held X amount, but like we sold like 900 four, three day passes, sets of 300 because there were single days. So we'd sell 1,800 tickets. And it was like, wow, we should go to somewhere bigger. And I've always been apprehensive about going somewhere bigger. But the numbers became a huge deal in the later period of the fest. And, like, a lot of promoters who are doing good shows don't use math. And, if, and, I, and I remember that, but, like, I got out of that by the time I was, like, 21, 22, in the early 2000s, not using math to figure out how a show will do. But, like, I think the data and the data collection and the way we look at how, who bought tickets and where and all that stuff is so important because we have to plan a budget, you know, like our biggest year to date ever was 2013. Our second biggest year to date was 2015. So 2014 was dope, but there was a little bounce and 2016 was dope, 
but there was a little drop. And 2017 was like right in the middle of there. And last year was dope, but last year was nowhere near as big as those years. And people still come. So it's like, it, it gets frustrating because you go, now I got them. This is a year it's going to be dope. And I actually, it's kind of humbling to be like, look, you can't just throw some fucking bullshit lineup and just everyone's going to come. Like, you got to make sure you work for it. And you have to understand the taste, not just musically, but what you're, what the person who's coming wants. And you have to give it to them. If you don't give it to them, they're not going to come back. And it's hard because I, I've had my, my own, I'm an emotional person. I've had my feelings crushed at times when we work so hard for something and not a band getting a reaction, but like the numbers play so hard. Cause you're like, how do we do this? And this year, like this day isn't as big as this other day. Like what the fuck? Like, and I learned to just pay attention to them and try to foresee some trends, but you know, be safe, you know, like not, not do the fest. So you need almost the entire thing sold out, you know, cause since we moved, we've never had, a sold out weekend but since we moved we always have tickets available and i actually make this joke our our transportation out here is called septa and i'm like i feel like a septa bus everyone's like oh, i can't go this year i'll just get the next one and it fucks me up because it's like you know without the annual support and a, and a base number of people coming you know we're not a we're not a company we're not a corporation we're just like people do shows and i don't i don't take a profit I'll pay myself to do this hardcore, you know, like, so like if we don't have support one year, cause everyone's like, oh, I'll just go next year. That could, that could actually make sure we don't have it the next year. And it's a hard thing to say, but it's important to understand. Like everyone says it's so big. It's like, yeah, it's so big that it's easiest to fall. You know, like I always tell, you know, blood, I'm envious. They need, they need just under 800 people in their room to break even. I'm like, oh, that's easy. I would love to go back to that. That'd be simple. We'd sell out in a day, you know? And um, my protege, Bob Wilson, he's an amazing human being, and my little brother, uh, and he has FYA, and, and he, he and everything that I showed him with the numbers and everything with that is why FYA does so well. But I'm envious of Bob. He's got this perfect size venue, perfect size fest that's almost like a can't lose number in my head, you know? So the bigger is also is always easiest to fall in the long run. But because we do the things we do, we're lucky and we're proud and we're very appreciative that we get the annual support to continue. It's hard um, for me to imagine because uh, you have to you know try to curate this lineup to try to please um, the entire hardcore scene, which is very hard to do, which never happens because somebody always has something bad to say. But um, how do you guys like uh, keep your ear to the ground, like leading up to booking the fest to see what current trends or see what bands are popping? Um, or even, uh, you know, there's newer bands popping all the time. So like, like what's your guys' strategy on trying to, you know, know what's relevant, um, and popular in the hardcore scene? Um, number one, I have been booking hardcore shows continuously for 22 years. And most seriously from 2003, uh, onward, which is its own 16 years straight, of consistent show booking, 
you don't you don't not know what's going on, you know. Um, you know when when the social media came out, we got the Friendster and we had the MySpace and we got the Facebook, you know, like uh, and we've always been on the social media end, but like now that I'm getting older, um, and I, you know I do get up and work. Uh, I get up at like four in the morning, three in the morning. So some days I just can't be at a middle of the week show. But like, I still go to shows. Chris Striegel, you know, my, my partner, my buddy, you know, we grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons together. He came on to help me work the door at the fest and then sort of working the fest. And then he started helping us with this, uh, the Philly Hardcore shows. Chris books a ton of bands. Bob Wilson is a part of the Philly Hardcore shows gang. And, he books a ton of Philly shows, and he has FYA. And um, what sets us apart is the three of us book shows throughout the year. Um, some of my friends at book fests, they are also show promoters, and they book shows throughout the year. And I think the best thing to do as a festival promoter is be someone that's active, you know, 52 weeks a year, 12 months a year. You know, like, um, you know, like I, I, I am a big fan of numbers. I learned it from Sean Agnew. I learned it from Robbie Redcheeks. I learned it from the booking agent guys who put me on that, like how to understand what a safe, limited risk show offer is. And so, you know, the things, but like, you also have to take a chance. And you know, what fucks me up is like, I, I, I will care. I, I have to have a couple bands that I know are a dice roll. Like, yeah, I put truth and rights, Eddie Leeway's band on the fest two years ago. I don't think the whole world wanted to see them, but guess what? I wanted to see them. They're my boys. I think if everybody was young, all the young kids who like bulldoze would have paid attention. Like, oh, it's some of the guys from bulldoze. Shit, we should watch this. But that's how it goes. But like, it's kind of also what makes some of what I do a little differently is my tenure in hardcore and the people that I know. I could pull some random old bands that aren't even that big, but very cool, like Ages of Man and stuff like that. Every year I'm pulling some shit like that out because I want to see it myself. But to get back to the, your, your main focus, popularity ebbs and flows. And sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it's just like watching, you know, like what kind of kids are excited in our own hometown. Sometimes it's watching a certain band and you see a certain magic. Like, um, they had played two smaller shows and they jumped, they played a show with uh, Jesus Peace and Burials. And then they ended up on the Code Orange show that I did. And I'm watching them. And I'm like, oh, this man's cool. But I was pissed off at them because they wouldn't even say hi. Like, the singer wouldn't even say hi to me. He just like ducked because I guess he was intimidated or something. And we kind of, I kind of cornered him. And they're like, he, like, he's like, yo, hey, man. I'm <laughs> like, hey, man, what's up, man? Thank you for saying hello after playing for me three times, you, you bastard, you know? But then you see these kids. And, and what I saw in vain as people not on stage was the same thing I saw when the first time I saw the Code Orange kids outside their house in North Philly. And I'm like, you gummo looking motherfuckers are living in the hood. Like, I hope you guys don't get killed. You know, like it's great to see these young kids out here living like maniacs in the, in the goddamn war zone area. But you kind of see they've got something extra in, in mind. And I'm kind of lucky that I got that. You know, you got to remember the beginning of the fest. Blacklist, it was the shit, and they were going to break up. That was like the big band that year. Like, I had Terror. I had Blacklisted doing their last show ever, which obviously, like, three months before, they're like, you know what? We're going to stay a band, which was the best thing for them and us. And then, you know, we put Ceremony on fourth on Sunday, and I'm like, 
uh, ironically, years ago, like 2003, Anthony from Ceremony put my band on a show, but like Ceremony gets up there and all these random kids are going nuts. And I'm like, fuck, did we miss that this band was way more dope than we thought? Like, we, I thought it would be cool. And like, oh, this band's crazy. I, oh, I can't wait to see them. And then when kids were going off, and I'm like, holy shit, people know this, man. This is even fucking better. You know, like that stuff happens sometimes. And sometimes shit is just organic. You know, sometimes I've told bands, ah, we're going to wait another year. And they're upset. So like, put me in coach. But then when they get their chance, they blow it up. You know, like sometimes I, I make mistakes and I, I put, don't put the right band on. Back when I was uh, younger and a little bit more uh, emotional, and, you know, too invested at times, I'd be like, you know what? This band's playing too much. I don't think people are care. And I shot, pretty should have done it, you know, but like, I've always had a good open communication with the bands we book. I always listen to people at my shows and I look and see what they're into. And I want to make everyone have fun. Like, you know, like it's kind of like a house party. You want to make sure you have enough food for everybody. And you want to make sure everybody has the cool snacks and shit. And sometimes you got to eat the shit that you like. And, and that's kind of how I do it. Literally. That's awesome. I, I definitely think you um, nailed it with that description of the house party. Um, yeah, literally. Like, you're like, you got to treat, Anything you put on for other people, like how would you want it in your house? It's got to be rules. You got to let everybody know, you know, hey, this is how she is in my house. I don't fuck my house up. But you want to make sure everybody's happy and everyone's secure. And, you know, like, I don't think I did it even in a 90 percentile, but, like, I get lucky. And I also, to some degree, have to agree, have to believe that the weight of the excitement for This Is Hardcore gives a little juice to some of these bands in their engine when they need it, you know? And I'm really just happy that we can help bands. I mean, I went on my first U.S. tour 20 years ago this year. I was losing my fucking mind in Philadelphia. I needed an escape. I got to be a roadie for one of my, you know, friends in Dysphoria. And it changed my entire life. That, that tour was the basis of so many social interactions and connections that became bands that would play this hardcore later. And my friends that I still have. And so, like, I really do know what it means to be a kid on tour and what it takes to, like, survive. And I really want to help a touring band out, you know? Like, it sometimes has a change, like, in the modern content and the modern climate where every band tours. And you don't even... There used to be, like, oh, this band's on tour. You have to watch them. There was, like, this ingrained support like yo man they're on tour you better look at this band instead of be outside now everybody's on tour so this like, eh, who cares and they're on tour they'll come back i heard them on band camp i saw the youtube but back in the day support meant putting your fucking eyes on them or buying a t-shirt or buying this tape and so you know here i am still doing this and i got a fast and i can help some tour bands and i can make some younger bands more uh, accessible and help some bands grow. And then the bands that are dope are coming back being like, Hey, we didn't forget about you. We're back. We want to do this again. And it's great to have that rapport with them. You know, it's relationships more than anything is why I think that people enjoy playing the best is because I, I, I try to, I, I'm a phone call guy. You got three texts and I got to go. You send me more than three texts. I'm calling you or I'm just going to ignore you. I, I tend to not have my cell phone with anywhere near my near me when I'm home. I use email and I call you on the phone. So a lot of these upcoming bands, whew, they got their ears talked off talking to me. But it built relationships that still stand to this day, you know? I think that's awesome. 
I think I would prefer a phone call over text messages because obviously so those like, get like repetitive. Go ahead. To, 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 to maybe derail some of your thoughts or maybe add some texture to it. 1996, I, I knew about shows and I was going to them and my friends were putting them on and my friends were playing them. And I wanted to do it, and I kind of like started like asking questions. Back in the day, before the internet, you had zines, and the DIY culture with zines. People always writing how to book a show, how to make a flyer, all these great ideas. And I was obsessed with saving zines. I I think you know being, you know, even though I was sixteen, I was I didn't have a lot of money and couldn't buy everything, you know. But it was the five dollar, it was the five dollar T-shirt or the ten dollar T-shirt, a two dollar cassette tape, or the 50 cent zine, dude, I walked out with an arm full of zines and I filled my head up with so much crazy shit. And then like, I'm talking to older guys that give me their old zines or let me read them. Like I was seeing obsessed. I learned so much, but I couldn't practically do it. And I bought this thing in, in the, in the tower of books on South street. It was called book your own fucking life. And I was like, I need this. This is going to change my life. And it did. It gave me addresses. <laughs> and so, like, to back it up, you bought a demo cassette, and the demo had an address or a telephone number for a band. So, young Joe Hardcore, not even really known well as Joe Hardcore at the time, started handwriting letters to bands. I would like to book your band in Philadelphia. Here is my number. <laughs> I have a letter from Scott Vogel <laughs> when he was in despair. And he addressed it to me as Lee Hardcore because my fucking handwriting was so bad. I've got letters from Jamie Haybreed who used to send me records and try to get me to book some of the bands on his label. And like, there was a magical time in Hardcore that is completely gone because of the texting and Twittering and all that shit. Well, you had to really handwrite people. And um, this is gonna sound completely against the technology of today. Before the telephone, payphones were digitized, they were on analog. So there was these things called dialers. And you would dial someone's long distance number and put it into the telephone and it would go beep, 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 beep. And it would trick the phone into thinking you paid money for the call. And you could call long distance that way. And hardcore kids all had them. And I had to buy mine from Robbie Redchie because he was like the, the sneaky, I sell the dialers in Philadelphia. I don't know how many phone calls I made to bands and band dudes at the time. And I got like this little voice and I'm like, Hey, I just want you to book my show on a dialer or a payphone at the Seven Eleven down the street from my mom's house. That's how I started writing letters and calling people with stolen um, <laughs> dialers. So like, yeah, I, I can send an email festival. Like I, got, I, I'm up on the Twitter, you know, I got all this stuff, but like, Nothing's more organic than hearing someone's voice. And I judge a lot of older bands and younger bands when we're talking about doing the show with like, hey, what are your feelings on playing the show? You know, and if they're like, ah, well, fuck you, there's someone else. You know, like, I like to connect with the bands that we're working with so we both own it and we're both excited for it. So that's why I use the phone. That's the history of why. Also, I feel like through just 
reading text like a lot of people can take things the wrong way so i feel like being able to communicate you know with our voices and say exactly how we feel there could be like no miscommunication and you guys can be on the same page easier if that makes sense yeah i mean all the good old school booking agents that still exist and the best of the best get on the phone the email is cold and flat the text is like Hey, I'm your boy, but I don't want to hear your voice. Well, fuck you. I don't. I don't care. You know, I'm not. In, I'm the only probably dude in hardcore. I don't have a group text. I got the Facebook text gimmick a little bit with a couple buddies, but nothing to do with hardcore. You know, but like, you gotta call me on the telephone. You know, but I love it, and I feel that I get a better connection. I don't feel like I waste time. I feel like I get to know people better, and. Years after their bands break up, we're still friends. Or years after they can't play the fest because they're too big, we're still friends. You know? Yeah. Real quick, um, let's. Uh, hey, 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 oh, no, no, I'm I'm loving this. This is awesome. Um, okay, real quick, you, you brought up uh, group chats. I, I kind of want to step away from talking about this is hardcore for a second. Um, so I, I'm I'm in a group chat with um a kid like hardcore kids um that are like sprinkled throughout like the United States, which can be um you know a little frustrating because you're getting like you know hundreds of texts that you just don't want to read but i think it's um pretty awesome because um since we're all from different parts of the u.s like it, it's cool to see hardcore from like different perspectives and it's you know cool to have friends in different places um but yesterday um one of my friends uh he posted a screenshot of um this uh tweet from that uh from that guy who's in the band revenge season um i'm i'm sure uh you know about all that drama i i, I saw you saw you tweeting about that um i i just like i try to stay out of like you know all the uh, drama of hardcore but since this is something that happened literally yesterday i just wanted to um talk to you about it and get your thoughts on it which part? Um, this whole situation with uh, the girl, you know, um, sending that message to her friend, then her friend saving the, the, the screenshots and then trying to post it months later. Um, it, this, this, this culture is just different than my world. You know, um, everybody's on the phone. No one communicates. Everybody saves everything for later. Like, look, I got old friends that when I see them, we're shooting a fair one. And we're gonna rumble. We might be friends afterwards, but we gotta fight. This is the way. It's the rule of land. Like, look, man, bad blood happens. When you see me, put the twos up because we're shooting them. If someone's gotta go down, and that's how we handle things. However, in the modern era, everybody is out there saving shit for the day they may need to use it against someone. That's so duplicitous and like evil that I don't understand it. Um, I can't grasp it. Um. If you're asking me how I feel about the way that people feel, I will tell you that I'm too removed from the situation. Um, I'm a now I'm a I'm a, thir- I'm a young 38 year old construction worker. I unfortunately still hear people on the job regularly use the hard N word. I have to not argue with these human beings because you get kicked off the jobs for biting people. And I'm lucky that I work with 
some of the awesomest dudes who happen to be black and they're all old school guys, 40s, 50s. And we talk about it all the time, the way race and construction is a hard thing to deal with. But I grew up in a black neighborhood. I was a very long haired kid in a very dark neighborhood. So I understood how white people act versus how black people act. And I could see the nuances. I could see how like, you know, like the other day we were walking in the hallway at this nuclear plant. This guy wouldn't say hi to my partner. Is a 58-year-old Christian dude named Simon, and he's a, one of the most Christian people I ever met. But he's a great guy. He's an old, old, old uh, brother. And he looked at me, and I looked at him. I said, you know how that is. He's like, I know. And we talk about it all the time. Racism is so ingrained into people that it will be this generation with seeing that it's got to go the other way. The white kids are doing better. And I think that people are talking more about like, oh, this is the problems with race. So I see the silver lining and, wow, if these kids are upset. Maybe they won't repeat the sins of their fathers and grandfathers. I still see it on my job sites. I've learned to just like, eh, what am I going to do? Lose a job every time someone says it? It's hard. But I see it in just in the workplace. Um, in hardcore, it's, it's very weird um, because the, everyone shoots for this immediate reaction. Oh my God, this happened. I'm so fucking mad. I'm so fucking mad. This is the worst thing. This person's a piece of shit. They're human garbage. This is that and this is that and this is that. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I get it. You're upset, but let's tone it down. Not because it doesn't like equal reaction, but because this is your rawest reaction. Um, I can't excuse either party. I'm not trying to say like, you know what? I would give her a second chance because I'm not the one gives people second chances. I'm the person that goes, this isn't for me to decide. I'm not going to bang a gavel and go, she is clear of all charges. That's not what I do. I said, that's why I made a tweet. I did. You guys will figure this out. I've watched so many reactions on Twitter go from being like, we're mad to someone being like, Oh, well you're mad about this when you should be mad at this. And then it flips again, it flips again. And over the weekend, everyone gets mad. They tweet it out and then they're chilling over it. And who knows what happens? I particularly was mind blown when I heard the gimmick about her, asking Jeff to lie for her. And yet I feel sorry. Not like I feel so I pity you. Like I feel sorry for her situation that she would lower herself to be so dishonest that and desperate to change the narrative. And it sucks that it happened. Um, I don't know if that explains it from my point of view. I think um, a lot of, there's a lot of naivety in hardcore. I think the need for white people to be, so I'm on the level and I'm not racist that they almost go too far and are insincere. Um, and I think as kids get older, cause we're talking about a lot of younger people, the whole brain, I don't know what they say. The whole frontal cortex don't even fully develop until 25. A lot of younger folks are still learning the process and still learning about social things. And you guys get the benefit of not learning in your thirties and forties how fucked up you were raised. You're learning it now, which is dope. And I think that what comes from this kind of stuff will hopefully affect positive change in a bigger world, not just in hardcore. But young people will flip out on hardcore Twitter over everything. So I have to take a step back and go, let you guys figure it out, unless it's something that really upsets me. And I get pretty vocal on the Twitter. That's why I got on Twitter, because I, I realized Facebook, I'm writing 17 paragraphs, and people are like, well said. 
but I wasn't reaching younger kids about some of the ideas I had. So I went to Twitter, and it took me a while to look at it and go, how, how do these kids interact? How do they feel? And I see the reactions, and, I, and I, I can't, I mean, I'm probably like everybody else in the world. I probably have 14 million unwritten tweets about things I would like to chime in on. But i got to back off because it's not my play. I don't need to have to say. Um, I don't know if I've over-talked on that one, but. No, I, I think I think you um, made it pretty clear. Um, I definitely feel the same way. I try to just not get involved because I, I I noticed that like you know something like this will break out and then out of like the woodwork people will just um, come in and just start saying um, oh yeah that band sucks I never liked him and then it's just like this like mob like, mentality and it's just really strange to me because I'm like okay if you guys all felt this way before how come nobody was vocal about it they waited for an opportunity I, like when it was okay I would I'm, like to address that separately okay so Twitter is a weird has a weird timeline you don't you don't talk in succession with each other it kind of get cross-feed, like, oh, he retweeted this? What's that? Oh, well, what he's saying here? So everybody gets to chime in on each other's shit, which makes it way different. It makes it move fast. It makes a lot of cross-pollination of ideas happen. So it is, without a doubt, and I had to have a couple conversations. I mean, you got to remember, Chris toured with that band. Chris, you know? Oh. we. I mean, we've booked them in the past. Okay. I'm familiar with the band. I've always had a ton of people in my ear being like, yo, this band is not good. And I would say, look, man, everybody's young. Like, I, I'll tell you, my band's punishment was terrible. But we got lucky that we were able to get on shows and tour. So I always felt like Revenge Season was one of those bands that, like, given the right situation, they're going to write the better songs down the line. And I never trashed them, and I never was like, yo, man, like, you know, these guys are pieces of shit. I never said like that, but, like, I would watch. I was ship back and watch these younger bands. And I would say that because of Chris's re relationship to the band, I think people felt like this is hardcore was going to book them. And I just never felt like it was their time. You know what I mean? Like I never felt like this is the year of revenge season is going to smash. I always felt like there was a little quiet animosity about the band, but because uh, Morgan specifically was such a prolific tweet person, Nobody wants to criticize anyone. And that's where I was getting to. Okay. If you remember what I said, I grew up reading zines. Yeah. You could read a zine and be like, this fucking demo is the worst. I fucking hate these guys. And then the next zine you pick up, great demo. You know, this is what hardcore needs again. You're like, well, they just said that. And you read, like, you read these words written. Yeah, a couple people would go back and forth. And that was probably old school hardcore drama at the time. But it wasn't bad. It was just... You could have a criticism. You could say, hey, I understand this band plays a lot of shows. I don't like them. And no one would retweet you and have something come cocky, sassy. You were able to voice an opinion. The band could read the opinion, and whether they liked it or not, it was there. And I don't know if the world of hardcore today could handle someone writing something down and being like, yo, I don't really enjoy this demo. I think this song is boring. I think I've heard this a million times because people don't want to read anything that isn't popular. I don't know how you motherfuckers were raised, but you know, criticism builds character and there's no criticism. It's either immediate adulation. This is the greatest record. You ever see a band? Have you ever heard someone say they didn't kill it when they played? Record no. comes out. Is it never the greatest record of the year? And 
maybe it's just me looking at like hardcore from a longer, longer viewpoint, but like nothing ever gets the M E H. Nothing is ever, that's not my thing. You know, there's always a backpedal too. Like, well, I understand it, babe. You don't like it. Or, uh, no one's able to just speak freely, which is why you didn't hear no one say, I don't like revenge season. You know, like, Again, we talk about the tweets and the and the and the, the side gimmick of the the group chat. Man, I bet that band was blown up in people's group chats for getting shit on. You know, but on Twitter, no one wants to go to war. You know, if you're if you're going against someone who's got whatever amount of tweets that girl had, she's got to deal with somebody who has a lot of people on their side to smash back at you. And I think that's why you didn't hear nothing about that. Because I wasn't on, I, I had this article Twitter forever. I kind of didn't want to get on Twitter at first. I was like, I don't, you know, social media, the void, you know, it, it's really hurts your brain. It doesn't let you have time to, you know, develop your own opinions. But then I realized I was away from the faster, younger kid conversations. And I would constantly be told, oh, this was said on Twitter. I'm like, fuck, I need to see this shit. Like, I, not because I want to watch a train wreck, but I want to see where these ideas develop and how they form. And so, like, the long and short of it is, is there's no criticism. You can't critique somebody on Twitter because there's the retweet, clap, clap back. There's a 17 friends armed and ready to go. There's a group chat. Go on here and tweet against this person. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a misrepresented support for some bands. That's totally fair. I definitely get that. Excuse me. I um, have this buddy in our group chat and I swear he can't go a day without texting the group chat saying that this band is like the next big thing or this is like record of the year. And he's done it so often. Like I just tune him out. Like sometimes like I'm like, okay, maybe I'll check it out if I, if I see it in other outlets. But like with him, it's just like, like I, I feel like he wants to be the guy that um, was like, I, I told you guys all this like before, you know, he wants to be the guy that was like ahead a of the wave. And it's just, um, you know, kind of annoying. Cause it's like, dude, like you don't have to, you know, know everything. Cause like I ask people all the time, like, Oh, like what's the cool new band in your area? Like, you know, what band should I be looking out for? Um, that's putting out new good music because it, it's just hard to know everything. So there is a beauty in all this. Okay. We're talking about people that are excited about music and are psyched. But the thing is, is again, quantifying like metrics and tweets and retweets, your entire generation is based on numerical approval ratings. And you guys are being like drawn into like, oh, I posted a poor, poor, beautiful girls out there in the world. Post a picture. They don't get a certain amount of likes. They delete it. The metrics in social media blind people from reality. And, and when I look at, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a side story, but when I were to tell you the, the side gimmick, okay. when it comes to homeboy who wants to be, um, the guy who sees it first, he's just excited and he's young and he wants to have a finger on the pulse and God bless him. But you know, like, uh, Brandon Watkins, biggest head in North America, guitar player, year of the nice, and one of the biggest retards I'm friends with. He sees a fucking band. This band is a killer. No one is better. Like I watched Brandon on his Twitter FYA. And I was like, this motherfucker, every band that comes out, we got to go on tour together. We got to do this together. 
And I know it's because he's such a supportive, good human, and he's just trying to put his boys over that everyone gets the, this is so hard, or this is next-level killer. But if you're, that's all you're saying, you're not going to – the cosign doesn't mean as much. Uh, you get to then consider the source. You know, Brandon's in a cool band, dope. His wife is a thousand times cooler than he'll ever be, and he knows that. But, like, if I was in a band and Brandon started putting me over, I wouldn't even be like, oh, it's Brandon. That's what he does. He puts everybody over. It's good to support your friends. It's good to be honest and tell bands or your friends when they're not good. You know, the slam them in public. But I think that there's a lot of people that are looking for that numerical rapport of, like, yo, just see my tweet? Got six retweets and a hundred likes. <laughs> You're like, yo, motherfucker. It's just the words on a screen. It's not even reality. You know, it's not reality, but it's your guys' reality because you can't separate truth and fiction numbers from reality. You know, so I I sort of fibbed, and I, and I need and, and I need to recompense and apologize for that. Um, I was on my Facebook. And I get a lot of stupid messages. Hey, what time does the show start? Or hey, if I buy tickets, can I trade the? And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? So I don't, the Facebook message gimmick for me is so hard because you got you got people like, what, what day is this hardcore in 2100? You're like, why, not, why do you care about three years from now? Or like this crazier shit. So I don't read my Facebook messages all the time. I, I let them stock up and then I go back through. So I want a message gimmick and I see this thing and it just keeps popping up. I'm like, what the fuck is all these messages from this thing? So I look at it, I have to pop it up. And it said, ha, 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 I don't even think he's going to even answer. And I realized they're at, they put like an app for me. And I'm like, yo, what, what is this? And they're like, oh, LOL, we put you in our group chat. It's a Facebook group message. I'm like, yo, so what's up? <laughs> so uh, I don't know if you've seen on Twitter, they're uh, identified as CDA. But the young Midwest kids kind of adopted me two years back. And like... I love the little homies because I get to like talk to them. I get to get put the same thing you said, like you get to learn about what's going on out there. You get to see their feelings. They can ask questions of me. And like, it's not that I don't have my own young homies, but it was kind of fun to have some kids that don't know me from Adam, just know that I'm whatever they think I am. And we could talk about bands and I can, you know, tell old guy camp stories and listen to what their thoughts on things are. And I have to keep it on mute because they, it's like to be 2000 messages every time, but like communication moves fast. And it's because of like groups like you have and the CDA boys who are repping hard at the LB, uh, LDB fest, you know, but like, it is interesting to see the group mentality of group talking. Like, you know, back in my day, you went to shows with the people you knew, you got to the show, you talked to people you knew and you gave dirty looks to the people you didn't know until one day the dirty looks became high fives or you had to fight one of the dudes and you became friends. And the way people make friends now is so fast that I don't know if they really ever become real friends because it's all internet related is where I was getting at. But I still do like the CDA dudes. I think your homie who wants to pick out the best thing isn't wrong. I think he's just going to back it down a bit and really say like, is it really the best thing he's ever heard? Is this really the, 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 the shit, or is he just excited? I get excited, but, like, you know, it goes away in 10 minutes because then there's another thing. It's my ADHD, so rampant at this age, you know? 
Yeah. So uh, that, was, that was a lot to take in. Um, real quick, shout out to. Sorry, buddy. No, gotta, this is awesome. I kind of, I, I kind of ramble sometimes. Love it. Um, shout out to Year of the Knife. Uh, they announced um, today um, that they're signed to Pure Noise Records, which is awesome. Um, it's been going on for a while. Is it? It's been a long. It's been, it's been going on for a while. I mean, you know, I have the pleasure of being friends with people in cool bands, and I'm very honored, privileged, and really respectful of everyone's confidentiality. Okay. And I mean, this has been going on for a while with them, uh, and I'm very happy to see young guy, you know, young guys, and my favorite person, Madison see fruits of their labor, you know, coming to harvest, man. It's awesome. This has been going, this isn't like a, oh, this happened in the last two weeks. This has been in the run for quite a bit. And, you know, um, this is what, this will hopefully be just more good year than I feel, you know, but um, glad to see if people really like it. I like making fun of them. um, But like, you know, those are two people that love hardcore, Brandon and Maddie. And, we just, if you ever watch the Twitter, it's always me and them two going back and forth. That's what we do. Uh, Maddie, she does those really cool posters for This Is Hardcore. So I wanted to mention that. Maddie, Maddie's my little sister. I have a little sister who's 35 this year. But uh, Maddie is um, just a really unique, wonderful person who has a lot of talent and Unfortunately for her, Austin was like, hey, how do I help this is hardcore? And got like graphic slave date labor duty and, uh, you know, really jumped out and helped us and became a big part of the team. Um, one of the most private moments of this is hardcore is the pre-fest dinner. And um, I have this rule that I only eat with like my friends. Like, if you get invited out to eat, it's not a huge deal. It's not like a fucking red carpet event. But, like, I won't eat with someone I don't like. To the point where I, if I walk in and there's someone I don't like at a table, I won't eat with them. But I always believe all good things begin and end with a great meal. And so this is hardcore. My friends come to dinner and everyone dresses up. And I have a lot of friends that are some of the older guys used to help out with the fest. And they got kids. Some of them can't make it because of work. They come to the dinner. And so, like... Maddie and Brandon became part of the family and like come to the dinner. And it's just great to see these kids who helped us out so much be a part of it. Um, ironically, this hardcore actually ends with a dinner that nobody knows about. Every year, Bob Wilson and all the kids in Boyertown, Jill and AC and Matt Carl and, and Kevin Hare and just tons of awesome people come and they stay till 2 or 3 in the morning putting all those tables and chairs away. And then we all go and eat at the same Oregon diner. And, you know, it's like 40-something people. And it's just the most best way to end the fest. So I wanted to – we brought up Maddie and Brandon. And then this hardcore involvement maybe got all emotional about the the dinners. No, that's beautiful. Excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's just what we do. I mean, it's just – it's almost like, you know, it's ritualistic. I mean, it's ceremonial, but like to break bread with your people is the way to start something special. And it's a great way to end it. I mean, every year we post a picture in the backyard of everybody on top of the tables and tired and everyone who put the tents away. But that, you know, 
you know, when they're all said and done, it's four in the morning. We're all at the diner laughing our asses off and I'm eating chicken fingers and waffles and just like just laughing about four days of some of the most chaotic shit, you know? I, yeah, I, I can imagine after like such a long day, the last day of the fest, um, you know, building up to that moment throughout the entire year. I'm sure it's nice just to be able to sit back with all your friends and just eat and just, you know, look forward to the following year. Yeah, okay. Wanted to bring up, um, uh, you remember the B9 board, obviously. You were on there. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. I was <laughs> Yeah. Um, so th- there was this, uh, uh, this, like, probably my favorite thread. Uh, it wasn't anything, like, too crazy, but it was, um, it was like a, a thread of just like, you know, hardcore, like, you know, uh, stories, just like, you know, um, from like back in the day. And yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Hardcore myths and rumors or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I okay, yeah, and like just I, I I remember you know people would um just like be refreshing waiting for the next Joe Hardcore story, um and I'm pretty sure it was in that thread um where you talked about how um you and some friends uh got to come to California to go to the AFI music video shoot. OG Pro Mosher, motherfucker. Can you tell us like about that whole situation, how it happened, and how you ended up in California, and what it was like? All right, so in 1999, we toured. We met RJ. RJ is the man, and he's like be with best friends with Mikey Hoods. Well, our, you know, we knew the, you know, like RJ ends up when AFI blows up being the guitar tech, cause that's his homies from back in the day. And they're coming to Philadelphia and they text me and they're like, yo, could you get a bunch of monsters for, for a video? I'm like, yeah, of course I can. And so like, I started hitting everybody up and like, they had some, like, you know, appearance requirements and just some ideas. And we're like, no, it could be cool. So then out of nowhere, he's like, yo, this is gonna sound crazy. It's cheaper to shoot the whole thing in California than it is to shoot it in Philadelphia. I'm like, well, that sucks. I wish we could have done it. He's like, no, you guys are still coming. I'm like, what? So AFI's manager calls us and she's like, how many guys do you got? And I like, throw I know about 15. And I'm like, so we get the starting lineup of goons to be in this shit just from the East Coast. And um, the short of it is that some of these people are Philly only people that like literally have never done anything besides go to California, which is dope. Some of these people are old friends. Some of these people are sadly are old friends that we don't talk anymore, but, um, it was a mixture of old friends from, you know, Philly to people that we knew that looked cool and with Mosh hard, which unfortunately though, vapid isn't, is important. They wanted to see cool tattoo people, which is why we brought Jay Pepito from reign Supreme. And, uh, my boy Luke from Chicago, the killer, <laughs> they flew him out and uh, go to California. They pick us up, take us to a hotel. Uh, they, I'm straight edge still then, but the wild ass shenanigans that happened because they gave us all our own hotel rooms were insane. Dudes wake up and like, I don't even think some dudes went to sleep. But we all got up, they put us in these bus, drove us to the lot and then like, more chaos in shoes and there's the Salt Lake dudes that we know, the Donnie Brook dudes were there. Uh my boy Mike 
big shots, uh, OG emo Mike, the psychopath, worked at the airport. So he got his own flight and got into the video shoot just because he got his own flight. <laughs> so awesome. That's just like, the dopest shit. So we go. Uh, they got us moshing, and we have to uh, mosh to hate, breed, and sick of it all. And in the first half an hour, Luke from Chicago gets his ribs broke. <laughs> it's fucking great. And, I mean, dude, we're smashing each other hard, and it's fucking fun. And we do this shit literally all day. And, like, at one point, I'm like, yeah, this is corny. So, like, we talk to AFI and RJ and try to get the directors to understand, like, the way they have us doing it doesn't look right. And they had some cool gimmicks and, like, the – the, the weird Mace thing that they did, the Macy scene, which was a background story about something that happened in California show where the crowd got maced and they wanted to represent that. And, you know, overall, a bunch of, at the time, young, you know, poor kids from Philly and some other hardcore people got to get together and we all got to go ahead and be in our rock video for a band we thought was dope. <laughs> get the mosh, kick each other. The, uh, the party last at our hotel afterwards involved zero girls, but was one of the craziest shit I've ever seen. Like, just so much fun. Then we flew home. I got home, and I was a little baby because I'm I'm a I'm a big homebody person at times. So I'm like, I'm not gonna go out. The next morning, my brother Stony, who's dead, he comes over with a PlayStation Two, and he's like, Yo, we were at the bar last night. Guy came in with this PlayStation 2. I'm like, oh, it's still cool. We used to play FIFA soccer all the time. So he put it on, we're playing it. And he's like, yo, man, you can keep it. I'm like, I, I don't want this shit, man. I got GameCube, which is literally why I have GameCube. And he's like, no, man, like, actually, we all chipped in and bought you this for uh, taking us to California, man. Thank you. And, like, that made me cry. Like, that broke my heart. Like, these are dudes I grew, like, was 15, 14 at some of my first shows with. Dudes I came up with, dudes I'd still be friends with. And I just wanted to have fun. But the thought that my dudes took, like, we got paid, like, I think we got paid, like, 80 bucks each or something for the day to be there. The fact that they all chipped in and bought me a, a video game and a PlayStation was so dope. Um, the lineup included uh, Jay Bush psychopath maniac my my brother my best friend uh if you're from philly you know the name and if you're not you won't know but he's a fucking legendary psychopath um a graffiti writer that probably doesn't want his name being out there but he's a psychomaniac matt dempsey who was in horror show who ended up he's now a black belt with 10 planet who runs the ventura school matt was in it my buddy casey huckle who is a math teacher Plus my homie, and he's like, just graduated college. I'm like, let's take Casey, he's a goon. Um, you know, Luke from Chicago. Uh, like I said, we had to bring some cool-looking dudes because we were just like little hood rats. We weren't cool-looking, so like Jay Papito had more tattoos than us. Ironically, a dude we were really good friends with, Jimmy Walsh, who ended up being in sinking ships and bands, who actually ended up getting beat up, and we hate him now. Jimmy was uh, there. My buddy Todd McNinney, who another old school hardcore dude from Philly who is a family guy, total neighborhood kid. I grew up a couple blocks from him. We found a lot of bands together. Uh, Todd from Dysphoria went. 
it's just a great time. Like there, I, there's probably names of people I forget, but like, man, I've never, I mean, I've been on tour. I went to Europe, you know, I've seen a lot of these people, but like, yo, Stoney's there. Stoney's dead now. Stoney died a year and a half after that happened. And I know for a fact it was his fucking idea because he was a living saint for as crazy as he was. You know, like, it still fucks me up just thinking about that. But, yeah, so that's what happened. It was RJ because he's the man. Sammy the Mick, my bro. Who, I mean, just telling this story, there's people who are dead now that were there, and it hurts my feelings to think about. You know? But, like, that's growing up. It's like, oh, yeah, that shit was uh, 19 years this May. And there's at least three dead people that were important to me in, in the shoot, you know? Damn. <clears throat> Excuse me. I apologize if that was a sore spot. I didn't realize. No, no, no. Uh, don't okay. apologize. Don't okay. apologize. Emotion is good. Okay. Not, emotion is good. It's not bad. It's just like, yo, this is the gimmick. It's like, yo, man, we're going to, you're going to live. You're going to, homies are going to die. You're going to get laughed. I'm like, shit, I can't believe why people would even know about that. Like, the funniest shit was just like, like the, the, the video shoot was a shit. Like, there's no question the video shoot was a shit. It was a dirty warehouse. We're covered in dust. We're trying to kick the people that we told know from other cities really hard because they don't know how to mosh according to us. But, like, we're back at the uh, hotel gimmick, and the one hotel room, that uh, everyone had double beds, and everybody had, um, uh, like, a sleeping buddy except for me. So last night, I'm the straight edge dude. A lot of guys were straight edge, but I was the most straight edge dude probably out of them guys. Uh, my my other bed became where a, a giant card game happened, and motherfuckers were ready to fist fight, and it went on until 6 in the morning. Meanwhile, there was illicit drugs being done on the roof of the place, like in something out of the hangover, like it was madness. I don't think half these dudes slept at all, because it was like, yo, we'll never be all together doing this crazy shit again. And it was dope, man. It really was. It's like a story that no one thinks is cool, and it's not really like a, something you want to go ahead and brag about. But like, it was more like that's a lifetime moment, you know. Like, that's the first time a lot of them people were in Philly, and the last time a lot of them people ever went to California. And I'm happy that because of hardcore, and because of people that I connected with on my U.S. tours, that we all got to have that, you know. And I'm thankful that the dudes like Davey and. Uh, everybody with AFI asked us our opinions and wanted to have something related to hardcore as they became one of the biggest rock bands in the country. You know, very cool. You don't see that that much. Thank you for telling that. I'm, I just remember reading that in the thread and I was like, wow, this is so crazy. Cause, um, I didn't realize, you know, people like you, Jay Pepito from uh, Reign Supreme, the dudes from Donnybrook. I didn't realize anybody was in that music video because at the time when that came out, I was like super young. I think, I'm pretty sure I was in high school, so like all that stuff was just like new to me, and I just you know thought yeah, I was it was one just- of the older ones, and I wasn't even 23 yet. <laughs> I was like 22 years old. Gravity, Todd, Dysphoria, the singer Dysphoria, took me on my first U.S. tour. He's now in my SCA shit with me as my brother, but like. I mean, like, he's the oldest dude there. Like, we're fucking almost getting kicked off the plane, on the plane. Like, there's so much, like, hijinks from, like, how do we rent a van to get us all the airport and back? And just, like, the story is just, like, yo, a bunch of wild assholes, all young as fuck. You know, all, I mean, Todd McNinney went to California. <laughs> to me, it's great. You know, like, fuck. Like, and if you know the Philly people, you're like, how the fuck did you guys not 
end up in jail or kill anybody, you know, like, but that was like the, the time where that could happen. Now, ah, it'd be a mess. Everyone would be calling their wives, saying goodbye to their, you know, kids, Skyping and shit. There's no cell phone. No, no, not one person on the trip had a cell phone. Think about that. We just left. Think about that. No one had a cell phone. <laughs> yeah, that's just such a trip. Having to like rent a van to get everybody to just to get down to the airport. Because like nowadays, um, that wouldn't really be a problem because you could just call like an Uber and just get picked up. I'm Uber. I'm Uber once in my life, and it was when Shadowwell went to the UK, and they called an Uber without my permission. I only use the taxi cabs. Okay. And is there? A, I'm sorry. Is there um, a, a reason for that? I've got this like we need to support the immigrants and this. Uh, I don't know any more legal, good working job that many immigrants in my city and many cities have, which is being a taxi driver. They're legally warranted to drive. They have a license. It costs them a lot of money to have this business. Yeah, cab feels like the back of a cop car, but whatever. You're paying them five dollars, whatever. You go somewhere. That's a fucking job. Now somebody's moonlighting in their own whip, taking you around and trying to give you weird ass candy, and you can rate them, and they can rate you. That's part of that shit. That like, yo, know, man, like, what's wrong with a fucking cab? I, I'm not done trying to be like archaic and use a fucking you know only horse and buggy or some shit, but like. People have real jobs and like they spend $150,000 for these medallions and they go through all this hassle to be employed willfully, legally. And everybody who talks about, we need to support immigrancy and we need to do this. We want to support an immigrant, get a fucking cab. Because that motherfucker has a job, you know? But the truth of racism is motherfuckers want some white ass Uber being like, hello. You know, give me a five-star rating. Here's some fucking candy and my aux cord. Why the fuck do you need to listen to music in a cab anyway? Half the fucking cab ride is being uncomfortable. This guy being weird as shit. I don't know. I, my wife used Ubers. I won't even me. get in it. I won't even get in it. Okay. Where I grew up, I... I never, uh, said, I, I never said I wasn't eccentric, by the way. Oh, no, it's totally fine. It's great. Um, <laughs> where I grew up... It was like um, a city called La Quinta. It's like east of Palm Springs. So um, taxis weren't really my like. My wife was just there. Uh, wait, what? My wife was just in that town because she went to Palm Springs uh, in early January. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I've never been. You know, it, it's nice. It's um, like a place where people come to retire. It's like really chill out here, not busy at all. Um, so if you get a chance, you should definitely come check it out. Just don't come during the summer cause it's crazy hot. I think the best time to be out here is like, um, winter, spring. Well, man, I, I put concrete in the heat and I get heat stroke. Okay. I get something under the shade. I am, I am not able to deal with the heat, but I could pull, I could be outside in negative five degrees. It still affects me, but you bundle up. I hate the heat. Seriously. I hate the heat. Yeah, it's terrible. Like, I, um, so from living out here, um, I uh, moved to Orange County, but before I moved away, like, I start work really early as well. Like, I, I have to wake up at like two in the morning. Um, and out, um, out in Palm Springs, when I would get up for work, like, the sun wouldn't even be out in the summer and it's already 90 degrees. It was such like 
it was just so painful. I hated like living out in Palm Springs during the summertime. Yeah, I'm not feeling all that. That's way, that's way too hot, man. I was yeah. in Arizona. Way too hot. Um, as we're doing this podcast, I'm going to order this cheesesteak real quick. I'm not kidding. So continue talking. Okay. I'll um, keep the conversation going. Yeah, keep talking. But um, ah. <laughs> uh, th- this is great. This is awesome. Uh, well, you mentioned um, very briefly uh, that your, your buddy um, was in uh, 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu in, in Ventura. Oh, fine. <laughs> well, I think we're just going to wait to lose that order. Sure. Oh, yeah, you were talking about jujitsu? Yeah, you you mentioned that you, your, your buddy was a 10th Planet Black Belt. Yeah, um, Matt, Matt Dempsey grew up, grew up, actually was one of the first people in my life I got into a fist fight with. Not kidding. That's and, awesome. Um, he, he's one of the coolest people. He was in the band Horror Show. Um, another friend of ours and him moved out to California and they worked in bars and they got motorcycles and Josh was in a horror show. Actually, Matt was in a band with me. Uh, we played one show ever, me, him and Josh. And I, Josh actually, uh, died in a motorcycle accident in California and Matt stayed out there. He's, I don't know if he's straight edge still, but he's still like a vegan dude or whatever. And, uh, yeah, he, he got his blast belt from Eddie Bravo and he runs the venture. He and another guy owned the Ventura Ted Planet School. That's wild. That's that, that's cool. I wanted to ask you about jujitsu. Um, you recently picked it up, if I'm not mistaken, right? Absolutely, yes. Um, how'd you uh, get into um, BJJ? And um, I noticed that you roll with the gi. Have you ever done it without? Um, brief history. Jared Wiener, Philadelphia Hardcore. I met him in 96, and everybody was talking. Oh, Jared's in the jiu-jitsu. And I've seen UFC, so we were like, oh, shit, this motherfucker is Hoist Gracie? Shit, you gotta watch out for him. <laughs> and so, like, everyone was like, yo, man, watch out, man. Jared does that jiu-jitsu shit. And I was like, oh, fuck, you don't want to deal with that guy. So that was kind of how it was. I was like, oh, don't fuck with Jared. And he was never a bully. He was like a dude that could handle his shit. He's a uh, super anti-racist guy. You know, he's got big Jewish stars on his back. And just like an older, a couple, only a couple years older than me, so like an old head at the time. And, um... You know, I always had excuses. Oh, I, I, I'm always on tour, or I don't really like wrestling on the ground. Or then when I started working in the trades, it was I can't get my hand. And a lot of guys I was friends with in the early 2000s picked up on the jujitsu as it got big, and UFC started being more organized with like gloves and shit. And a ton of my friends in hardcore were getting knees dislocated, arms pulled. I'm like, look, man, I make money with my hands. I can't do this. And um. I'm going to tell you the real story. You, this is going to get a little serious from it. Okay. So, uh, I never really thought jujitsu would be for me. Uh, my brother Cracker does it. Damien from Punishment did it for a while. Got a lot of friends in jujitsu. Tons, like literally tons. And I've, you know, and I've, I, there's always a part of me that's like, everyone's doing it, so I'm not going to do it. I'm just too retarded anti-social, punk rock, whatever you want to call it. But I always thought jujitsu was cool as shit. And um, we're going to get some TMI here. I hope you understand this. Okay. So uh, at, the ed- at the end of a show this year, somebody locally had a problem with me, and they came out for me with a baseball bat. 
and uh, keep the details limited because I got a lot of love for the kid. He was just like drunk and being dumb. But uh, he comes after me with the bat. It doesn't go his way. And I'm on top of him and I'm telling him, look, I love you, man. You got to calm the fuck down. And I had a couple of friends with me, but no one jumped on him. It felt bad for the kid because he's all fucking whacked out and he got the baseball bat and tried to hit me and it didn't work. And uh, a friend of mine from H2O was there. <laughs> he's making a joke. He's like, Jared should give you an honorary belt just for that. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, oh, that was great jujitsu. And I'm like, oh, it wasn't no jujitsu, man. It was just street fighting. And a buddy of mine who has to remain lameless because he's also a police officer was there and he's tight with everybody. And he was like, I, I texted him. I said, yo, thank you for everything, you know, looking out. And he's like, you, you, yo, man, you handled yourself well. And I was like, yo, was that all serious with the jujitsu thing? He's like, yeah, man. He's like, that was a perfect display of street jujitsu. So Jarrett and me started texting and I was asking him, I'm like, man, I'm getting too old. I, I like, I, Back in the day, I would fight with everybody. You know, like I was an asshole, angry, dickhead, stupid motherfucker that just would drop the gloves. You know, I grew up watching the 1970s Flyers. So, and, and, you know, I had a long hair, and I grew up in a black neighborhood. So a lot of times, you know, here you are, your long hair wasn't cool. You had a strap, man. You had to put your hands up. You're going to get bullied. You're going to get hit by people. And the saying was, like, I'm not that dude that gets stolen. You're not going to hit me, and I'm not going to hit you back. It kind of put me in a cycle of crazy violence that started, you know, in my early preteens and, and didn't end until almost my 30s. And so being an older guy now, I mean, I'm still young. I'm in pretty fucking good shape now. But, like, mentally I'm in a more relaxed position. I don't want these young guys coming at me and trying to get these fair ones because I'm not in that life no more. So, like – the curiosity was piqued when he said perfect street jujitsu. And then I said, well, even if I just do this, you know, if, if things, cause most fights go to the ground, but I'm not afraid to headbutt people, which is why I have scars on my head and do this dumb shit, but I don't want that in my life. So my wife surprises me and buys me a key. And I go in and I'm nervous and I'm scared and I'm anxious. And I'm fucking heavier. I'm like, it was 250. And I'm like, man, I'm not going to do good. And I sucked. And that was, uh, the end of, those are the end of June. And I'm not good now. I suck still. But one of my, like, tight old heads, Hard Carl, who was, um, started Jinx Crew Tattoos in D.C., builds tattoos. This is like an old school, awesome, hardcore dude. Moved to Philadelphia, did his head right, and he goes to jujitsu. So now I got my buddy, and every Thursday we got our roles. And more people, like my, my, my younger cousin, Franny, he's a fucking brown belt. He starts going to school. Jared, I've known for 20 years. All these people are connected to this school. And to sum it up, something bad happened that kind of jerked me into thinking about doing something I was always wanting to do but afraid to do. And it has positively changed my life for the better. That's awesome. That's crazy, <clears throat> man. Sorry, my throat's messed up. Uh, that that random uh, encounter on the street where the guy came at you with a baseball bat led to you um, kind of piquing your interest um, over this whole jujitsu. That that's such a trip to me. Surreal, man. And it's like at another time in my life, I could have been the kid with the bat. At a different time in my life, that kid would have got hurt. And instead, it was kind of like, hey, man, I love you. You're, you're absolutely out of your fucking mind. 
And I don't, I, I, and I, that's how, my, that's where I'm at. I'm like not, you know, like I'm not trying to be this dude. So it hurt me emotionally because it's like, yo, like, is it because I'm finding peace with the world that now people are coming for me? Cause like, I know back in the day I was an asshole. Don't we get to grow? Don't we get to change? So I get into jujitsu and the first thing I learned two weeks in is that no one's going to eye poke me, headbutt me, elbow me or punch me. So I'm like, Oh, this is like a real fight. I can relax now. And then I start realizing it's chess and I start like, you know, getting excited. And my academy is a competition academy. But that being said, there's tons of people that never compete and are just good folks. And it wasn't like a hardcore show when you first go and no one talks to you. People are saying hi to you right away. Um, younger guys, older guys. There's a guy, I'm going to shout out, Majed. Motherfucker has a left arm or right arm, I don't remember which, where it's ending at his elbow. Then he goes to jujitsu every goddamn time I see him. There's a class where he takes Muay Thai and then he puts on the gear and goes and does jujitsu. So I got no excuse to not roll if this dude's doing this with half an arm. And I find jujitsu to be the most positively supportive environment to push your friends, not shit talk them, not make them feel bad, not be like, oh yeah, I tapped you, you suck. They're like, dude, that was awesome, you got me. I, I, and you know, like, I go from being insulated. You know, like, I don't want to reach out and be too extra because I could talk for a million years. I worked my way in. And now, like, last night I couldn't roll because Jared's band, he's got Jared's got a new band called Guillotine. But my boy Ruben from Chosen Ones and all these punk bands, we sang some backup vocals, me and Joe from Wisdom and Chains. I fucking miss jujitsu to sing on my boy who owns a jujitsu school's new record. You know how cool that is, man? And we were laughing because... Ruben lives in Austin. He's a 10th planet white belt. Joseph from Wisdom and Chains is a purple belt up in the, um, up in the Poconos. And Jared is a fucking fourth degree black belt ass whooping maniac. And I'm some cheesy white belt, you know? And we're, here's some four jujitsu dudes singing on a new demo. It's great, man. And like all the young hardcore kids or all my older friends who are like, how did you wait till now? And, you know, they're black belts or brown belts. And my dudes in Richmond who got into it are all purple belts. Like, it's amazing. And I just kicked myself for just, like, not allowing that anxiety that was in me to be like, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to say it's stupid because I'm afraid that maybe I'm not good at it. Like, I wish I'd gotten this in my life sooner because my head would be so much more on track. I lost over 40 pounds. I I've got such a more respect for wrestlers. When we were kids, we were brutal, the wrestlers called them every name under the book because we were soccer players and we were cooler. And I get hurt by wrestlers at jujitsu so bad. I want to handwrite every kid I made fun of in high school as a wrestler. I love you. I'm sorry. I never should have made fun of you. You guys were the kings and we were all pussies. Don't hurt these guys in jujitsu who don't know wrestling. Thank you, Joe. That's a letter right to all of them. That's awesome. I hope uh, they randomly hear this and uh, get that uh, letter from you. Yeah, so um, I don't do gi um, because it was the thing that I think is the best. It was the only thing that made sense to me at the time. And now that I'm at about six months straight, I went right before this article, but then I took off for like three weeks, and Carl started while I was on vacation. So I've been rolling since the middle of August every single fucking week. So now I'm getting closer to where I want to start doing gi, and our gi class is pretty sick to watch. I actually just bought my first rash guard. So, okay. um, 
want to start seeing me try that out. I've never wrestled, as I said. And um, I love the aesthetic as a gi. I had a, um, a time where I was a Kempo martial artist as a kid. And uh, so I remember wearing a gi, but this is obviously like a real-ass cool gi. I like the look of the gi. I like some of the moves better, but um, I want to be a complete jiu-jitsu uh, player, so I'm also going to take gi class, uh, gi and no gi classes, you know? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I see both sides. Uh, gi is definitely way more traditional, um, and I, I think at times, like, a little more technical because you have to worry about, you know, like, collar chokes um, and all that crazy stuff. But um, a couple of years ago, um, actually, man, I feel so weird talking about this. It's actually been more than a couple of years. Um, right before I left Palm Springs and went to Orange County, I started taking um, or started training in MMA because locally um, there was a gym that opened up by this UFC fighter, Cub Swanson. And I, I walked in just like, okay, just I'm, I'm going to be humble because I, you know, got in street fights and I just wanted to be able to defend myself properly. And I'll never forget going in and just being in a room full of people who actually knew how to fight, but everybody was just really nice and like willing to like show me stuff. And nobody was like aggro and trying to take my head off. Cause I was like the new guy trying to learn how to fight. And it, it just, um, like the thing is awesome that like these killers are always so humble. Like I, I hear that all the time from like, you know, people training from like, you know, all different gyms like throughout the world. Um, everybody's just so friendly and welcoming. Well, I mean, if you ever slapped hands and bumped, you know what the fuck it is. And that's it. Like you're going to have a good day. You're going to go and roll. And like, you don't know what the next guy's working on. So you could go out there and you could pull some, like, I'm going to pull some Ashigurami shit. And that guy would be like, I didn't want to work on that. You know, like, you have to have some kind of respect. Um, you have to have that kind of respect. Thank you for your your training partners. Um, uh, Jarrett Wiener, a couple years ago, began Tag Team Jiu-Jitsu, which is a jiu-jitsu association. And he wanted to bring, not like the greatest ever. I mean, you're familiar with jiu-jitsu. There's a kind of jazz, jiu-jitsu associations, but, like, we aren't training to beat our partners. We are training to be better as a team. Every person who gets on that partner, whether it's their first time they're in a gi and it's their first class, I say, hello, what's your name? Can't, you know, you're going to have a great time. Boy, girl, big, small, whatever. I want everybody to walk into our school and feel welcomed and feel like, oh, yo, I've got a team environment here. And you just don't get that anywhere. You get that so few places where the support is universal, you know, like, and I know that since I heard things about MMA gyms more than just BJJ gyms, where there's some more, uh, you know, toxic masculinity and shit, but like our gym, you roll with girls, you give them respect. You don't do anything improper. You don't smash them more than you need to. And, and, and you be fair. Uh, uh, <laughs> Tuesday night, I roll with my young man, Rocco. He's 16 years old. He has a mustache. He's a white belt, and he's 95 pounds. He's <laughs> so small. And I'm like, all right, baby boy, it's time. Let's get this on. And he's like, all right, man. He's got this cool little 16 years old. He's got a little husky voice. It's the weirdest thing. This motherfucker, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm 250 pounds. I could have laid on him the whole time. It was a corny. 
I said, all right, let's work on stuff. Slapped hands. Boom, he's in. He's got my back. All right, you better get that on there. All right, you know, like, he tapped me seven times. It was a lot of fun, and I bet you, out of all the times he rolls in our school, there's guys that, even though he's small, won't let him work and try his own moves out. You know, like, I don't have that kind of ego. I don't go in there and go, hello, today's the day I tap this guy again. Like, if anything, I work on stuff. I try to understand. I need body pressure here. I need this or that. But, like, the beautiful thing about jiu-jitsu is there's always somebody going to be better, and um, they're willing to teach you. They're not trying to hide. They want you to learn what they learn because it'll make them better. And I feel like Jarrett Wiener and our trainers are so mindful of this and just keep the team atmosphere high. Um, right before this is hardcore, or right after this is hardcore, we had tag team day. So it, after this hardcore, I was going away to do one of my SCA war things. And I was telling Jared, like, hey, you're going to be around. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be He's like, oh, I really want you a team day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what's that? It's like, oh, you know, the whole team gets together. You know, guys get their belts and stuff. And I'm like, Oh, dope. That's cool. Yeah, I'll come by and check it out. I'm like, I'm like, I didn't think he, you, know, you know, you wanted me there yet because I'm not on the team. He's like, but you go to school, you're on. Hmm. Joe, you still there? Sorry, you're breaking up. Can you hear me? Hold on. Okay. Yeah, I I can hear you now. All right. Sorry. I don't know where I lost it. So kind of stories were jacked up, buddy. Um, um, no, you're saying I'm. Um, uh, you're saying that you, you're telling Jared that you weren't like a part of the team. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said I wasn't part of the team, and he's like, the minute you put your feet in this door, you're a part of this team. Go to tag team. Uh, I'll probably mess up his name, but um, Ensigno, like Pride Fighter. Oh yeah, he's tag team from Japan. Gave his dude from Guam a friggin' black belt that day, like. You hear all these cool stories. You get to watch all the guys who got raised up the black belt tell their story of like what it means to be a black belt. Guys, I just started rolling with. Boom, they're getting going from white belt to blue belt. It was cool to see, and it really was impactful, man. Like to see these people work hard and get this like meritorious award of like you know the next belt in front of everybody. And dude, I was brand new to jujitsu. I didn't really know that many people, and yet here I am sitting there with. Steve Ogley, my old head buddy, Steve, who didn't realize this time because he just got back from being hurt. He goes to a different academy that's part of the tag team group in our in, in, in our area. When I'm talking to Steve, boom, he goes from white belt to blue belt, and he was so psyched. Then I'm hanging with my buddy Craig. Craig's a North Jersey hardcore dude. Loves some death metal, loves hardcore, awesome fucking guy. Um, you know, like I'm hanging out with two hardcore guys that didn't know each other but because a tag team end up being on the same team and because they both know me, we all get to hang out together. If that ain't cool, I don't know what is, you know? And that's kind of, it's kind of how our, our team works. It's kind of how jujitsu it feels like, like no matter where you at, if you start talking jujitsu, you end up knowing people. And the hardcore scene is always had jujitsu players, but it's even more so Jamie, Jamie and Goldman, from Code Orange or Blue Belts. Jared just went to True Believer where they're at in Pittsburgh and taught a seminar that which they attended. You know, um, the new guy, Code Orange gimmick, is now a white belt. Like, it's cool to see all these people pick this. I, 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 I hate to be like the proselytizer and, you know, evangelist of jujitsu, 
but I see the importance of it. I and I and I and implore everybody to at least try it. There will not be any of this is hardcore open mats as much as that seems to be the thing everyone asks us. Legally, it would be stupid. Physically, it would be stupid, but we are going to try to have a big open mat around the weekend of this hardcore at our academy to make it so it's easier for everybody to go. That's awesome. Hell yeah. Come down to the gym, Dino Gee. Someone will roll with you. You know? All right. I, I like how you brought it back to the fest. Um, I read this interview that you did with um, No Echo. I think it was last year. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. My dude, Carlos, hooked it up. Um, and you know, uh, sidebar. Go ahead. If there was No Echo, I would be doing a website like that. And we were talking about it for years of buying thisishardcore.com and just doing a website. And at the first, he wasn't big at all. And then I started watching his content, and I'm like, why do what he's already doing like better than we could? Like, he's doing it great. We, we should do something different. Because I wanted to be the anti-lamb goat. You know, I wanted to just, like, actually cover records. And I got to get put him over really hard because he brought a piece of that zine thing that we were talking about, like a sense of journalism. And I said the covering all the bands back into hardcore. So big props to him. I think what he does is amazing. Yeah, shout out No Echo. Um, there's this uh, quote from the interview. Um, I'm just going to read it back to you. Um, and you say, uh, to be honest, as much as there is hoopla and reunions and the older names, the heart of the fest is in the younger bands. It's a main reason why I did the fest in the first way or in, in the first place. And it's why we still do it. Um, I, I think that's um, really important because I, I feel like um, I've been around since like 2002. So I've lived through like a lot of reunions that I thought as a young hardcore kid that I would never see. Um, but I've gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, I feel like if I stick around long enough, like I can see every band because like they're eventually going to get back together. But I really like the fact that you guys put a focus on, um, you know, the younger bands coming up in the scene because that's the future going forward with this is hardcore fest. Since you guys have gotten like a lot of awesome reunions done, do you foresee um, a time where uh, reunions take a backseat and um, current generation bands take the main stage and are, are the main focus? This is hardcore 2019. Oh, are you breaking <laughs> news? All right. All right. No, it's just we're just. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying something different. Um, no, man. Like 2019. I mean, there if there's a reunion, I don't know about it. I'm not doing it. I'm not going after it. Um, I I got plans to keep it down the middle. You'll see old bands, older bands, and you'll see younger bands. But you know, uh, without knocking anybody's hardcore scene, because everybody's got it differently. The hardcore scenes where the old guy bands come through and the mothballed t-shirts and jackets come out when this one old band comes through for these guys who were at around in this late nineties, early two thousands. That's not my scene. There's people like that. And there are shows that I don't book with older hardcore bands that people go to that thing. And I laugh about them. Like these fuckers don't even come to regular shows. The heart of hardcore is in the youth. That's since the term use it today. <laughs> you know, like you have to have the youth. That's the fire. You know, like I love some old bands, but you know, the youth carry hardcore. It's a youth movement. 
in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of the older bands that are still around still carry the spirit of the youth in them and their lyrics and their content. But, you know, one would say that it seems that do the best in hardcore always have newer, younger bands welcomed. Because some scenes, like Philadelphia, we, we don't have the best bands, but we always got younger kids that support all the bands. These young kids matter so much that our sustainability depends on them not getting bored and leaving in three years. So you got to put some young bands on there. you got to make sure these people in these bands are getting to the next level so they can carry the shit on. And that's always been the focus. It's just like, you know, there's like an a arms race to like not have the same kind of bands. Right? So we ended up with Sheer Terror one year. Year after, I mean, that same year we did Ink Dagger and Kid Dynamite because we did the benefit for Max. That was unexpected. That wasn't planned. You know, this year, Terror year, Burn backed out the last minute. I threw a Hail Mary and ended up landing Sheer Terror, one of my favorite bands as a reunion. That's fucking crazy. I never thought that was going to happen. Um, um, it spiraled like that. You know, every year, like the inertia of the festivals, not just mine, but all were getting bigger where them older bands could come out, you know? Um, so we got in, we did some, we did some good reunions. We had some okay ones, but I've always just had a disdain for people. Like, What's the next band you're going to dig up? It's like, dude, I'm not sitting here like Indiana Jones deciphering fucking riddles to get these bands out of the sand. You know, they come to us a lot of the times, you know, and it's good that way. But like, I, I have no problem just putting good, honest bands on the bill and making the show awesome. I do that every month of the year. I put bands together that are cool as a show. I know how to put a bill together without a reunion. I mean, there is a specialness to reunions and there's an extra added bonus to some degree, but it's not everything, you know? Yeah, I, I would like to see the um, reunions kind of like slow down because I, I feel like. Definitely. Yeah, oh, it's definitely. Not anything, there's nothing that somebody wants to see that is really that impactful. Um, does that make sense? I'm sorry. Uh, you actually cut out. You're saying there's something that we didn't want to see. I mean, think about it. Name a band that you want to see right now that was from back in your day. You're from California, so you probably are going to be telling me, I want to see In Control. Now, In Control played Santa Cruz. Do you think besides a couple people, people know what In Control is? No. You know, like, how many how many bands, like, dope, you're from California. What about Over My Dead Body? I've always said, damn, in California, that would be cool to see. Young hardcore kids don't care about that. You know, like, it's weird what people care about. It's weird what people get excited for and it's weird what people you'd think they get excited for and they don't you know like meanwhile as we talk about this my alone in the crowd of show is next saturday so i still deal with reunions it's just like not the most important thing it's not the it's not the first thing that goes into the this is hardcore meat pie where's that reunion at those things come if they come and if they don't we just have a bill anyway which is how i'm rolling right now 
That's awesome. Like, if I'm gonna be honest, I thought that was a driving force for a while, just because you guys were getting so many awesome, like, old bands to come back and play your fest. No, they came to us. I mean, we went back and forth on Judge. Um, I thought it'd be ironic that the year before the Red Fest, they dropped all the reunions. They did so many reunions in one shot that it was like, oh, well, you know, half of that's going to not be cool now. We did it. But, like, it kind of went like that. Like, you know, like, Red Fest, Judge, what the fuck did we do in uh, 2014? We did no big reunion. We, I mean, unless you can have Bella 13 and Mabel doing set it up, there was no big reunion in that. 2015, we did American Nightmare. Um, oh, yeah, 2014, we did Modern Life is War, the Friday. My bad. Well, that was a judge year, maybe. Was it judge year? Yeah, the judge year was Modern Life is War, Friday. Saturday was judge. Sunday was war. That was 2013. So we do them, and then 15 was this dope bands. I mean, y- you could make the argument that Exploited would be an, a, a reunion, but they never stopped playing. Wadi's never going to die. You know, um... 2016, we had the opportunity to do the Turning Point thing, which is incredible. Um, oh, you know, 2015, we did Snapcase, but they never broke up. They just were not, were not so active. So, I mean, there's people that call things reunions without, like, a true designation. But, like, the Youth of Today thing, I mean, Youth of Today, we booked them in 2011, which is not that lineup. Ironically, um, I was too young to go to the city garden show at shelter that ended up being the last time that you today lineup played together. All my friends were like, Oh, we're going to go to this shelter show. And I'm like, Oh, it'd be cool. I can't go. It's in Trenton. And then it came back. We saw you today. I'm like, no, you didn't. I thought they were lying to me. I have another friend. I'm like, yeah, no, they actually did it. I'm like, this is cool. Cause I just started learning about that kind of stuff. So it was kind of sick to be like, Oh yeah, we have you today. And I mean, to the day, I don't know. Judge was dope, but like, I, I don't know if there was a moment cooler than seeing Walter like turn on the bass and soundtrack for you there. You're like, holy fuck, this is going to happen. But then again, 10 yard fight and one king down, like Jesus Christ, man, like that was fun. You know, like we do these things cause they're fun and cause the bands come to us or cause they can happen cause they have a record or something, but I'm definitely not throwing away good headliners to do reunions. If that's, if that's what the perception is. All right. That's honestly, I guess mine was just like skewed because I'm all the way out here from California and I would basically just base what I know from the fest from the flyers that I see. Um, and no, you're not wrong. I mean, it's just like it, it's kind of like the outcome isn't from my perspective the way it was meant to be. Shit just falls into place. I mean, literally. There's a year when we had Life Agony booked and they dropped. I thought we had burn. We ended up with Share Terror. Shit happens sometimes when you do this motherfucker. You know, you're like, you end up with a band, they drop, they can't do it, and you're like, oh, it's somebody else. That happens a lot of times, you know? Is there one band? One down was one I legitimately sought out. Okay. Because I'm friends with Rob, and I thought it'd be cool. And then when the record got announced, people went nuts on the internet. I'm like, no, how cool would it be if one down was like a cool thing for people? That'd be awesome. So we did it. And Tenure Fight, they wanted to come back, and that was dope, and they had a blast. And in 2012, I wanted to do Tenure Fight in my eyes and floor punch, 
and Tender Fight balked. They didn't want to do it. And so we didn't. So I always felt incomplete not having them. And actually, Tender Fight Floor Punch was the year um, that I went straight edge. And that show was so impactful to me. Their last show, it was fucking wild. And like six to eight weeks later, one of my closest friends killed himself. And I'm like, you know, like I, I was drinking at the time and being an asshole because I was really miserable with life, but I wasn't happy with it. And I you know, like, oh, all my friends drink. Most of my friends are kind of like, oh, you know, I was in this like weird stage. And like when Carmen killed himself, I was like, man, I really don't want to drink anymore. And I remember being so psyched at that 10-year fight uh, last show. And it was very impactful because it was like, here's a ton of people so psyched on straight edge. That was like the kind of, not to the same level of BJJ kind of like community, but I felt it. I was happy I did it. I think that the Tender Fight show was impactful in that regard. So to have them was dope. It was awesome, man. Is there a band out there that you've been chasing to get on the fest that you haven't been able to? Um, Everybody. I've been told no 1,000 times more than I've been told yes. Not even kidding. That's surprising. Um, yeah, I mean, you're not going to see some of the bands you're going to expect to see on the fest this year. Because a lot of them have tours. A lot of them are doing other shit. You know, like, that's the dichotomy. This is hardcore or something that a lot of people want to play. And then once they play it, or sometimes they don't ever want to play it. <laughs> or they, you know, oh, timing's never right. Sorry, we can't do it. And it's like, it's just a fucked up thing. It's kind of like, you know, you know, um, some of the people we want to work with, we can't. Other people we would like to have back, they're too uh, involved in the next part of their career or the schedules don't work. And, you know, you just have to go, okay, man, like I get it. Like we're not the most important thing to you. And I think there's another huge part of the youth thing is like, okay, cool. Band I helped or band I really liked doesn't want to play. Here's six young bands who playing this. Actually last night, name will not be disclosed. Band hit me up and was like, I don't know what to do with my band. And I just don't know like what I need to do. And like, I want to get to the next level. And I was, you know, talking to him through it. And he's like saying like, what he was getting at was like, he just wanted to ask me, but he didn't know how to ask me, Hey, could we ever play? And I'm like, dude, you have nothing to worry about. You guys are going to play the fest this year and everything's going to be fine. And they're like, he's like, stop. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, yeah, you guys are definitely playing this year. It's your year. Like you're going to fucking destroy it. And they're like, he's like, when are you going to tell me this? I said, uh, I'm taking my time this year. I'm not really getting too far into the lineup, but I mean, I have you written down. I was like, dude, I really want this band to play. And he was like, you have to tell me if we're going to play. I'm like, I just figured because you're local, it'd be easier. But you know, that's how it is. And then you, you get so excited to hear a, a, a band that I think is dope and you know, that are working hard, excited to play. It reminds you, oh, these five bands don't want to do it that you really wish could play. Well, here's these 25 bands and it'll, it'll change their happiness for the week or they'll be so psyched. You know, and you do it, and it, it, it balances itself out. You know. Do you have a schedule lined up on when you're going to start announcing stuff, or is that just too far out in the future? Last year, we talked about the numbers earlier in this interview, mm-hmm. and um, back in the day, we'd sell eight hundred, eighteen hundred tickets in a day. And now that people know they've got months to get them, they're not in a rush. So we push and push, and I feel like we draw our name out too long because 
the way Webb inter- interactions are, it's like, I've seen that flyer again. I already know the lineup. And we got to spend so much time and effort coming up with different graphics so you check it out again and check it out again. So we're pushing it back. I don't know if it's going to be the second or third week of May. I haven't figured it out yet. But it's going to be in May, and hey, man, you better either get your fucking ticket or you don't. I mean, we're not going to – I doubt we're going to sell out no matter what lineup we put together, whether we have every great band of all time. But I'm not going to be in the middle of April going, how come people aren't buying tickets? Oh, because they know they have four fucking months, so they're not in a rush. Okay, well, we'll go back to May then. We'll see if that'll snap your asses into buying tickets early because it's very hard to plan work on the next year's stress, which I always work a year ahead, when you're like, oh, well, you know, the first month the tickets weren't as good, maybe we suck and everyone's not going to come, and then you deal with that level of stress when you've got, like, X amount of $100,000 and bands out, and you're like, fuck, I don't know how to do this if we don't sell tickets, you know, and the stress is high, so I'm going to release all my stress by putting everything into the next three and a half months to get this fest to be awesome. So when we announce that people are psyched and with a marketing plan that includes a lot of different aspects we haven't tried yet and with a shorter time frame that will hope draw people that I better get my ticket down because, you know, he waited another month and we'll see how it goes. Trial and error, my friend. That's awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to the future announcements and um, I, I feel like this is like a good time to wrap up the podcast. Um, I just, I'm really sorry that I talked about a lot of weird shit. No, I no, were, uh, the, the, I rambled on a bit, and I'm sorry to anybody listen. I, I am a little eccentric. Uh, it's an unfortunate thing I read too much, and I just think a little outside the box from time to time. But I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. This is my first podcast in 2019, so I'm very psyched because I really this is one of my things. Was we used to get asked to do all the time, and people flaked on us. So it's really like stop saying yes to stuff just because. Oh, I really want to do it. And then they don't get it together. And it's like, you want to get the word out that this hardcore is still a thing. I want to get the word out that I'm not a complete crazy maniac. And I'd like for people to listen to this and go, oh, now I have a better idea about this crazy guy who just got on Twitter a couple months ago. You know? So I appreciate the opportunity, man. And I'm really excited that you're excited about what we do. And I just want to say thank you. And you're welcome. I appreciate you giving me the time and coming on the podcast. Uh, definitely going to have you back if you're willing. Anytime. I mean, like I said, we talk about anything we're going to talk about. That's awesome. All right. Thank you guys for listening. This has been another episode of the JMRK podcast. Always on top.
I just wanna see the light